This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to Soundbites, our weekly look at food, agriculture, and the future here on The Mark Steiner Show. Produced out of your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And also broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. This morning we're going to talk to two herbalists about Central Ashe Herbs and Education, a community-rooted education center, farmstead, and medicinal plant sanctuary in Southern Maryland. But first, we're going to hear the final installment of our broadcast of a town hall meeting that I moderated called A Game of Chicken. Over the past couple of weeks, we brought you the first two parts of a truly interesting meeting and town hall conversation we taped on the Eastern Shore at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore in Princess Anne, Maryland, with Delmarva citizens. So far in the conversation, we've discussed the poultry industry expansion and what that would mean for community health and local control. We've also heard testimonies from Delaware and Virginia citizens about how similar poultry operations and expansions have negatively impacted their communities. Now concerned citizens of the Delmarva region are beginning to organize together to keep their rural communities and local waterways healthy. If you missed the first part of our conversation, we'll be making the entire town hall conversation available on our website, soundbitesradio.org. Our panelists included the Center for a Livable Futures, Dr. Gene Fry, former Somerset County NAAC President, Dr. Kirkland Hall, Maria Payan, who is a consultant with the Socially Responsible Agricultural Project and the Assateague Coastal Trust, and Backbone Corridor Neighbors Association spokesperson, Lisa Insorillo. Without further ado, here's the final part of A Game of Chicken, presented by the Assateague Coastal Trust and the Assateague Coast Keeper. You think about uh, getting your question about anti-science. I think part of it is um, a lot of this science that's been done when it comes to um, you know so intense industrial animal production has been focused on uh, industrial hog farming, right? Dr. Jacoby Wilson from the University of Maryland School of Public Health. So the bulk of it, and actually that was at the time where there's more funding for it. So the funding strings have actually dried up. So a lot of the funding that you see re- around poultry is more about the operations itself, you know, uh, dealing with some of the nutrient issues, more of the, more of the management on the sort of the, the impacts on fence line communities, communities that have a high density of animals and looking at the associates with exposures to some of those pollutants that we mentioned before and health effects. There's, there's science, there's, there's studies, but not at the same magnitude when you're thinking about um, industrial hog farming. So there's a, there's a big difference in the number of published peer-reviewed studies between the two, even though both have some of the same types of impacts on the environment, some of the same types of impacts on human health. So I think that has uh, you know, created a, a barrier, right? And it's been a challenge, the challenge for many of us. And also getting to Dr. Farah's point about funding, uh, I'm now on the National Environmental Justice Advisory Council, so I, I'm a new member. So this is a this is a federal advisory council to the EPA on environmental justice. So one of the comments that I made last week at our first meeting in D.C. is we need to have funding accountability. We didn't know where the money's coming from as it relates to the Farm Bill, uh, the Department of Ag, any monies related to this industry, where they come in, taxpayers' money, to make sure that we know how it's being used and know what the return on investment is for the community. So I mean return on investment as it relates to health improvements, as it relates to exposure reduction, improvements in quality of life. So I think that's also part of this visioning. We have resources that we are, uh, we provide resources as taxpayers. Where's the money going to? You know, and so have some type of evaluation of those funding mechanisms to make sure that those monies are being invested in an appropriate way. I think that would also help uh, us understand how the science can help with that. And, and the science needs to be driven, help to drive policy. 
But as Dr. Frost said, you know, you, you need science, you know, data. People don't want it sometimes to hear a lot of the data, but you need the stories. As I said previously, if people are not participating in the social movement with great leadership, you have to have great followership, right? You have to have the actual citizens telling their stories along with the science. So you use the science to really, you, the stories illustrate the science, and the science illustrates the stories, but they go hand in hand. So I, I think that may be part of the issue as well. So, so having more of the data out there translated, but really translated through the, through the eyes and through the voices of the people, through, the, you know, through telling their stories, I think that's where a lot of the power is, and that's where the power of science is. So we can use science and, and, and you know, really be able to combat uh, a lot of the you know, sort of science deniers. But moving forward, and going back to what Dr. Frost said, if we can talk about, you know, get data on what are those, those agricultural systems uh, that have had a, a positive impact on community health and quality of life, uh, how can we work with our regional uh, development commissions in this area and, and get them to look at those reports and, and then really, again, have the community say, this is what we want to have. This is what the science is saying that would be beneficial to us because this is the Chesapeake Bay watershed. So I think that needs to be a part of the process. Let me get to the comments here that I'm going to kind of round this up here about where we're taking this and where we're going. We're talking about Delaware and one chicken to slaughter one chicken is going to take seven gallons of water. One now we're talking about all these chicken coops. How much water do you use just for one set of chickens? How much water? And then they want to dump it right into the Indian River, going into the bay, going into the ocean, and if you don't think it's not going to move, it's coming to every one of our homes. And what are we giving our children and our grandchildren? That's what bothers me. Actually, I have a question for Julian Sokobi. I'm in my 40th year of uh, practicing medicine and uh, in the emergency and urgent care setting. I came here to the Eastern Shore in 1995. Prior to that, certain upper respiratory diseases like sinusitis and bronchitis were something in a book. After coming here, approximately 80% of my visits for medical reasons, not trauma or surgical, are sinusitis and respiratory problems. And I'm wondering if there are any epidemiological studies to link what's going on with air quality and the, the, the way they're processing manure and nitrogen exposure and ammonia exposure to, to explain my experience. That's great. Jillian, do you want to grab that first? I'm not aware of any, uh, Shikobi might be aware of some, but there really aren't any epidemiologic studies uh, in this region. One of the problems is because of the polarization and the us versus them, there's problems with access and cooperation. One of the most straightforward studies we could do is to go out and do robust water quality monitoring at different points in the year because there's seasonal differences, especially with the manure spread, and look for levels of nitrates and proximity to, to poultry houses. But who's going to let us come and collect their water? Mm-hmm. You know, if it's just the people in this room, that's not an epidemiologic study. So that's one of the reasons. Another reason is, of course, funding. Big epidemiologic studies cost a lot of money, um, and the access and cooperation is a big issue. 
I think the clearest example of how scientific evidence doesn't translate perfectly into policy, even if it's ironclad, is the phosphorus management tool. So these are agricultural experts who came up with you know, the equations and this is, how much, this is how much phosphorus is in the soil in all these different regions and the crops that are grown there and the manure that's spread. I'm telling you, other areas have no data like that. But this is so robust. It's, it's agricultural specialists. It's part of the EPA effort. The science is absolutely clear that manure should not be spread in a lot of those areas. And how long did it take and what kind of fight did it involve? And now it's not even going to be in place until 2024. So, you know, public health studies are not that cut and dry, generally. So that's, that's exactly why, as everyone is saying, it, it needs to be a very multi-pronged effort because the science is never going to be ironclad and it's never going to translate exactly to policy. And that's a really good example of how that works. Hi, I'm Michelle from Food and Water Watch, and I just wanted to react to something Jacoby said earlier about engaging in the political processes here locally to demand that your local officials protect your community and create the community that you want to live in, and that's a healthy one and one where you have jobs where you can make a, a living wage, but that there are also efforts at the state level as well. And I was meeting with Delegate Moon and Senator Madalena yesterday, and they are two Montgomery County legislators who appreciate that you don't have to live in a rural community to care about the fact that this industry is poisoning communities. You don't have to live in this community to care about the fact that it has the highest cancer rates. And they are interested in putting in supporting three pieces of legislation, but they also, as Montgomery County officials, even though they recognize that they should be caring as much as anyone who lives here, feel somewhat paternalistic as well, or that's the perception by their colleagues. And so I think it's really important that people in this community and on the Eastern Shore who are ground zero and can speak with credibility about what you're experiencing lend your stories to these state-level efforts as well. And just quickly, a couple of the bills that they're thinking about. The first one would be a bill that would require the big companies, the Purdue, the Mount Airs, to take responsibility for the waste. Because as we've heard tonight, the farmers get stuck with responsibility. The farmers who live at or below the poverty line who can't manage the waste appropriately and ends up being just dumped on land and running into our waterways, right? And so every other industry that creates a waste product has to manage it responsibly or they can't operate. And so should this industry. And so this bill would place squarely the responsibility of picking up the waste at no cost to the contract growers when it's in excess, when the contract growers can't use it as a valuable fertilizer. It's there, it would become their responsibilities to dispose of it responsibly. The other piece of legislation would be a Farmer's Rights Act to get at some of the abuses we've heard tonight about, you know, um, preventing people from being retaliated against if they're sharing their contract, if they're speaking out about, about the abuses, creating space for them to um, create a growers' association, that kind of thing. So they're uh, disbanding the tournament system that Maria talked about that favors those that um, do company bidding and, and um, punishes those that... Uh, speak out about the abuses. And so they're that piece of legislation. And the other one is to strip dirty energy sources from what's called the renewable energy portfolio. So this state um, has a renewable energy portfolio that requires um, the state to uh, purchase electricity from renewable energy sources a certain amount by 2020. Um, they, the industry, the ag industry, was successful in 2008 of getting poultry litter characterized as what's called a tier one source that qualifies as a clean renewable energy source. So what that means now is that they can make money off of putting up 
things like poultry litter incinerators. And so right now, because we're creating hundreds of thousands of tons of excess waste in the state that the industry refuses to deal with and address, as does the state, the state signed a contract in 2013 to put the second-ever poultry litter incinerator, and where are they targeting it for its siting but here in Somerset County? There is one other litter incinerator in the country in Minnesota, and if you look at the air emissions inventories, it emits more toxic chemicals and greenhouse gases than the coal-fired power plants in Maryland, okay? So you're creating a new waste stream. You're not getting rid of the problem because all the nutrients and the heavy metals concentrated in the ash, it still has to be gotten rid of, et cetera. Um, And so this bill would strip all dirty energy sources out of the renewable portfolio standard, including manure to energy, including other things like trash incineration and black liquor that's a waste product from paper making. This creates an opportunity for us to partner with not just other folks facing um, the onslaught of CAFOs, but, you know, there's communities in Baltimore and Fredericksburg who are facing municipal incinerators that are being proposed, et cetera. And so there's an opportunity to band together on the shore, but then also to work with other urban, urban constituencies that are facing some similar abuses. Michelle Merkel, Director of Food and Water Justice for Food and Water Watch. We'll be making the entire town hall conversation available on our website, soundbitesradio.org. We have to take a very brief break, but stay with us. When we come back, we're going to talk to two herbalists about Central Ashe Herbs and Education, a community-rooted education center, farmstead, and medicinal plant sanctuary in Southern Maryland and also Costa Rica. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to Soundbites our weekly look at food, agriculture, and our future here on The Mark Steiner Show, produced out of your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and also broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. So we're about to talk to folks from Central Ashe. Molly Meehan is a community herbalist and organizer and director of Central Ashe's Herbs and Education, which is a community-rooted education center, medicinal plant sanctuary in Southern Maryland and Talamanca, Costa Rica. And we're also joined by Ayo Ngozi, who is a clinical herbalist who works with Central Ashe. And Molly and Ayo, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thank you so much for having Thank us. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I understand you both are on the way to Costa Rica to do work. Is that what's about to happen? That's happening very soon. Mm. I don't know. Maybe I don't like either one of you anymore. (laughs) (laughs) It's really work. Really, it is. It really it is. It's important work. Yeah. I believe it. It is important work. I'm just messing with you. But let's take a step back. So um, I guess I could start with with you, Molly, and I would just jump in to talk about a little bit about the the history and essence of Central Ashe. Sure. So... Central Ache actually started around programming in Costa Rica with traditional farmers and herbalists. Uh, and we have a center in Talamanca, the South Caribbean side of Costa Rica, uh, really focused on supporting local communities, primarily indigenous as well as Afro-Costa Rican communities that are holding on to their traditions as far as sustainable agriculture and herbal medicine. And so we've been doing cross-cultural group trips, folks that are involved in the food movement and herbal medicine, usually from the United States, uh, the global north, and then doing cultural exchanges with the communities there every uh, winter for, I think, the last six years. About four years ago, I moved back to the D.C. area, where I'm actually from, and uh, 
noticed that uh, there was uh, there's room for growing a grassroots herbal movement. Um, we had Thai Sophia, Maryland University of Integrative Health at that point, which is a graduate school around herbal medicine. And so really Centre Roche was, was created to try to have accessible opportunities to education around herbal medicine, the people's medicine, um, that was really accessible at the community level and more geared towards the, the community. So, so yeah, we started in D.C. Well, actually, we're in Bryan's Road, Maryland, about 20 miles south of D.C. Uh, on the Maryland side of the Potomac River, we have a small farm and education center there, and we've been in operation for about four years now. And we have a two-year herbal training program for people that really want to go in-depth and learn about self-care, care of their families with herbal medicine. All of our teachers uh, in D.C. are from the D.C., Baltimore, Virginia area. So they're all local herbalists that come and teach with us. And, um, yeah, it's exciting. We have an incredible abundance of teachers around here, and we're really excited to and thankful to have them come and teach with us. I know how long have you been with it from the beginning? Almost. Not from the very beginning, but I think that I came in at, during the second year mm-hmm. of um, the official grassroots training programs for the herbalists. And for me, coming from a background where I was really trained um, very clinically and from a very kind of evidence-based, scientific, um, heavy kind of background, it was really great for me to come into Central Ache in a situation where it's really much more popular education-centered in the style in which we're teaching and what it is that we're choosing um, to include in uh, students' training, um, what will really be applicable and helpful at home, um, what's helpful in the community, what can people um, do in a way that's accessible and share it with others. Um, and just for me as a clinician, it, it was really important to find a way to plug into a larger community than the relatively small number of people who are going to come specifically looking for an herbal clinic. Um, I love the idea of being a part of helping people to be empowered um, themselves around their health and around the health of, the health of their families and um, communities. So it's been really great. It's been a great learning and a great teaching experience. So when you when you say clinician, a, a clinical herbalist, is that what you might? A clinical herbalist, yes. I was trained um, to certainly to know a lot about plants and to understand, you know, people and um you know, physiology and kind of biomedicine. So I came from that kind of a background, and that's important. I think that there is a lot to be said for having um, that kind of a background and that kind of um, understanding around this medicine. And that is such a small piece of what herbal practice is, I think, in real life and in the world. Um, If you look at the fact that I think it's – Molly can – can clarify this, I think, but it's something like 80% of people in the world are using herbal medicine as their primary form of medicine. And if you look at the whole world, I'm sure very, very, very few of these people have a degree in science, you know, or or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I think that, that that is the part that's really important in terms of, you know, kind of establishing the difference between what clinical practice is and what real-life um, practice can be. So I, I, I really think it's a good point here to explore a couple of things. First, um, we always hear herbs and herbalists, but I think very few people very few people really know what we're talking about. And there's always been this kind of, for want of a better term, um, a not mainstream look at health um, that people go to find herbs or find pills are made from herbs 
uh, at the local health food store, some chain like Wegmans or Whole Foods or whatever. Um, so I said, let's talk a little bit, just defining what we're talking about here. I mean, uh, and get into what you do. I mean, you actually grow herbs, right? Is that we what you- do. We do grow herbs on our farm. Uh, I always say we have demonstration gardens because that's a whole nother rabbit hole we could go down um, in the state of Maryland, Maryland in the regulatory environment for growing and drying and processing our herbs and actually getting them to market is a challenge. And well, we wait, can, can ab- let's stop there for a moment. Okay. You raise that. Let's not lose that. And sure. we'll come back to this, what, what herbs okay. mean and what you're doing. What do, what do you mean? It's a, so it's- in the state of Maryland, um, the processing of herbs, the process, like I could go on our farm and I can harvest any fresh herb that I want and we can sell it at the farmer's market. Any fresh herb that's legal to grow, I should say. And we could bring <laughs> it to farmer's market and uh-huh. we could sell it as long as it's fresh, fresh cut. But as soon as we dry it, that's considered processing. And so there's permits and with that, quite a lot of infrastructure that's involved. Currently in the state of Maryland, there's only one farm that has successfully navigated that process to actually be able to dry their herbs and sell them legally in the state of Maryland. Uh, from what I, they're, they're Habanera Farm. They're on the eastern shore. They had to go through quite a process. They really have navigated this for the rest of us. In fact, they taught a workshop this past weekend at the Chesapeake Herb Gathering sharing how they did it so the rest of us farmers can learn how. So it was arduous. They were, you know, they, they came up against even sort of the legislators didn't even know how to lead them through this process. They had to put in quite a bit of infrastructure, like forty dollars to $50,000 worth of infrastructure for drying. And from what I understand, it's not the most efficient equipment. Comparatively speaking, from what I understand, they actually lose more herbs to um, some of the environmental factors than they would have had they been using old school kind of uh, old time methods like drying racks and things like that. So it's interesting. Um, I think that there's a lot of a lot of room to grow in finding a a processing environment as far as legislation in Maryland that, that helps us have more herbal farmers. It's a niche that, you know, we know our farmers need support in general, right? And it's a niche market for farmers. It's like a $9 billion industry, the supplements industry. And at the same time, we're over-harvesting our wild medicinals in the, you know, echinacea or golden seal. We need more people to be growing herbs, and we need policy that that allows farmers to grow and then process. Why, why do you think there's such a roadblock? I mean, what, what? Honestly, I can't even say. I can't even say. Um, I'm. Why is there such a roadblock to processing herbs? I mean, what, you know, why, why do you think it takes? I mean, I'll jump in as well. I mean, why it takes? What? Why is it? It takes so much to be able just to grow herbs and dry them. And what? I mean, are there? health issues involved? Are there people saying you have to have certain buildings that let the rain flow a certain way? I mean, what, what is it that's stopping you from just creating this farm? Well, there's this, there's this larger context question um, that's really getting – the regulatory environment federally in the United States is really gaining strength as well. What they're unfolding is are called good manufacturing practices for herbalists. And that's not just drying herbs. That is – Uh, making tinctures, which are extracts of herbs and alcohol, any of these sort of of end-of-the-line processed herbs you find in your health food stores, they're getting a lot uh, more organized, I guess we could say, as far as the regulations. And that's really pushing the small-scale sort of community, village-based herbalist. It's making a regulatory environment where we're we're totally kind of getting wiped out. But it's also challenging even for sort of mid-level companies like Urban Moonshine or Avena Botanicals that have been in, you know, they've been in, in the business for some, like Avena for like 30 years and 
they're not even able to kind of get through this process. So there's a but, lot to it. Um, well, I, I heard you trying to break in. Please well, go ahead. No, yeah, I was just going to piggyback um, on what Molly was just saying, which, you know, from, from my point of view, it looks as though if you just look at the regulations and you look at what's happening with, you know, manufacturing practices, it's almost as though small farmers, um, small herbal um, businesses, um, manufacturers, are being asked to hold the same standard as a as much larger. For example, Walmart can decide that curcumin is what they need to get into and um, have all of these farms growing and all of this. But the small farm, you know, Molly would be subject to probably the same, literally, not even probably, would be subject to the same level of scrutiny as a huge organization, a huge corporation. Um, in providing that same um, supplement, that same herbal medicine in the marketplace. Um, I think personally a lot of this, you know, does come down to the billions of dollars that are to be made, you know, in this industry. Um, But I think what's happening is that there's no difference um, from a governmental, from a regulatory standpoint. There's no difference between a small grassroots level producer and a huge corporation. And what happens is that corporations that have the resources, you know, to do the gas chromatography to prove that the dandelion really is the dandelion, um, would, and when that happens, you find these small companies, even well-established smaller companies, just unable to compete, period, and be able to meet the, the regulations set out by the FDA, by um, whatever other um, regulatory bodies are out there. And it's a huge missed opportunity for farmers because you've got companies like Mountain Rose Herbs that's like they'll go for months and months and they'll be out of something like red raspberry leaf or they have to import it from halfway across the world. And when it's growing at our doorstep. When it's growing at our doorstep. There's no good reason for that. But it's I think that just we have a long way to go as far as helping the small scale herbal producer, herbal farmer getting to that place where we're actually able to you know, feed the the huge market that there is in the United States. That's really, I mean, it, I, I'm interested in how these regulations work and how they drive small farmers out of business. And herbalists, medicine right, makers, right. the apothecaries. So how do you see yourselves when you, as, as herbalists? You, you can't grow it and you can't grow it yourself. <laughs> but you're certainly working in the middle of it. So, I mean... So how do you see yourselves as herbalists? Just what, 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 what exactly, Io, do you all do? You want to take that, Molly? Or? Go ahead, Io. <laughs> um, I think one thing that, um, that I see very much as being my role or part of my role as a practitioner is to be an educator. Um, and that means, in terms of education, that does mean, you know, in the classroom sense of the word, I think that there's a lot to be said there. Because, for example, there are a lot of restrictions on what I can say and do as a practitioner, um, as an herbalist, that may be different. If It's one thing to say, oh, well, you need to take this herb and it's going to support you in this way in your health. Um, I have to be careful about how I word that and, and you know, all of that. Um, but then there's a whole other level of um, really of wellness services that I'm bringing as an herbalist when I can sit with a person or sit with a group of people in a classroom and talk about things that they may already know, they may already be doing. I'm talking about more traditional food ways, and I think that's actually a lot. That's a big part when you were asking earlier of what is traditional, I mean, what is um, herbal medicine. I think food is a huge piece, and we something that Molly and I have talked about a lot is that we separate, we tend to um, 
separate the conversation of food um, and food sovereignty and herbal medicine or you know natural therapies and the sovereignty of healing where those are concerned so i think being an educator is important i'm supporting people in what they already have access to and know like food waves is a really important part and then there is the part you know being a clinician there's the part of sitting with people in consultation um, which still does involve a lot of or can involve a lot of education um and really helping people on an individual level dig into whatever health issues they might be having and, and what we can do to help them resolve them. So, I mean, and, and, as, and as an herbalist, you, you're not a clinician, clinician right? So or both Iowa and I are both clinical both, herbalists. Okay, and so I guess that's a good term to kind of clarify. In the United mm-hmm. States, there's no legal regulating body. There's no certification for herbalists. And so it's interesting because there's a lot of programs out there, become a certified herbalist, et cetera. At the end of the day, there's no difference between somebody that went to go get a Master of Arts in Science from Maryland University of Integrative Health or Bastyr and somebody that read an herbal book, you know, at home on their couch. And there's... There's strength to that. There's benefits to that because it's inclusive of the many, many ways that there is to be an herbalist. You can be a clinical herbalist. You can be the herbal farmer. You can be the herbal medicine maker and the apothecary. You can be an educator. You can be somebody that's in a lab, you know, testing chemical constituents of herbs. There's so many ways to be an herbalist, right? And that's really empowering. And... It also includes all the traditional healers, right? And as soon as we start regulating that, we open up this can of worms kind of like with midwifery or these other sort of really traditional kind of healing ways. I went to the Thai Sophia. I went to a three-year herbal training program at Sacred Plant Traditions in in, um, in, in Charlottesville, Virginia. So that's where we both – part of, of where we've learned, although I think we've, we're – Lifelong learners of herbs and are constantly engaged Before in that process. I, I'm going to come back to the central Russia and, and what you all do and get to the heart of this. <clears throat> but I was wondering, do you think that that at the state or federal government is going to move towards regulating what you do more, herbal medicine more, that there, there's something on the horizon there to make it, well, some of you could argue more safe for the consumer, but on the other hand, more difficult for non-traditional healers and, and medical people uh, to do their work. I think that it would be coming both from the government, but it's within the community of herbalists as well. They're having that conversation. There's a whole school of thought that really want this to become regulated and licensed, just like acupuncture. And then there's a whole school of people that don't really want that. And so that's a that's definitely something that's going to help come probably both within the herbal community as well as as well as from the government. I don't know. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Io. Io. Well, the only you know the only one thought that I do have about that is um, in terms of the safety question. Um, It could be that, yes, regulating herbal production can make things more safe. Um, But I think that those kinds of regulations are not geared necessarily um, toward what herbalists do and the way that herbs are used to support health. Um, Like, for example, requiring certain types of testing. for, certainly we want purity and, you know, you don't want your, your crops to be adulterated and that kind of thing. But there's a very, I feel like there's also a double standard, you know, because we see every day that there are any number of pharmaceutical drugs that are approved um, for the market that have these huge safety concerns, um, knowingly, you know, have these safety concerns. And that's something that really, really does feel like it's a double standard. Um, there is a lot of money to be made um, in the industry, and I think that it's really, in a lot of ways, 
new, the new regulations that are coming up are treating it much more um, as though this is a drug market, you know, pharmaceutical yep. drug marketplace, um, as opposed to what it might do for a food marketplace. Um, and the other layer to that conversation is within the last year, and I don't want to miss name the very large corporations, but there was three large corporations that just came under fire for their herbal supplements. I believe GNC was one of them. And there's two others, like national huge chains. And they did testing on their supplements. And many of them were found to not like their herbs, their herbal supplements. And they were found to like literally not even contain the herbs that they said that they contained. So that then affects even the small scale herbalists working with integrity because these huge corporations that are very profit center and oriented you know, there's not integrity at that level either. And so we see this How need. How surprising. For, right, exactly. <laughs> we see this need for, of course, protecting, you know, at that large scale level. But it's obviously there's so many layers to this. There's so many layers to this. So going back to what Central Ashe does and this, the life and work of an herbalist in this group. So just talk a bit about that. So many of us, I mean, are not really familiar with Central Ashe. Sure. Yeah. So we always say that we're a community-rooted herbal education center. We hold, we have our herbal training program for folks that want to learn a little bit more in depth. We're not a clinical herbal training program, but we do offer a lot of chance to kind of get your hands dirty in the ground, learning what the plants are that grow abundantly around us. We, like I said before, uh, before we started, our classes are timed with a season. So you really get to see from the beginning of our st- when our classes start in April, like how to plant a seed. What does that plant look like throughout the entire growing season? When do we harvest that? When is the best time to harvest a root versus a leaf versus a seed? We do our seed collecting in the fall, you know, so we really kind of pay attention to the rhythms of what's around us. We also do one-day workshops. We do classes sometimes up in D.C. We do a lot of community collaborations. Our big event was just this past week in the Chesapeake Herb Gathering, and it's it was about 200 people. We had about 25 workshops with herbalists. I always say land-based people, farmers. We want to really join, like you said at the beginning, food and herbs shouldn't be separate. You know, pharmaceutical medications started, what, like 100 years ago. This was really not stigmatized or this other thing not that long ago. It has become so, or people always say when you're an herbalist, they think you're talking about cannabis or something like this. But it's really, it's really trying to, to to join this conversation between the herbal and food movement. We face a lot of similar issues, we, you know, as far as government regulations or this all being knowledge that is traditional. Every single one of us comes from plant people, right? This is all of our collective knowledge. And so it's keeping that alive and, and thriving at the community level. And so that's really what centers our work here as well as in Costa Rica. And I, I mean, your work as, a, as an herbalist, I mean, I'd like to bring this into it, especially I mean, the idea that this is... Um, and, and how, the, how you work through Central Ashe. This is a, an ancient, ancient art and healing and medicine to me are arts as much as they are science. Um, and and, and how, you, how you approach that. I mean, um, you know, because people ever since pharmaceuticals took over kind of took any kind of herbalism um, and put it to the side as, as uh, something of the other, something out there, not part of what you should be using by these drugs instead. But also, you, the more we read and learn, the more knowledge we understand happened with indigenous people and other older cultures that use these herbs, even our, even our grandparents. Mm-hmm. So talk about how you approach that. Well, one thing that, 
A couple of things. One thing that's important to understand, I think, when we talk about herbal medicine and how it's been practiced in this country, um, especially in more recent years, one thing that we have to keep in mind that everyone didn't stop using herbal medicines when um, pharmaceuticals became more, you know, more abundant and pushed um, in different different ways. Um, there are people who always continue to use herbal medicines, and sometimes we think about that in a very kind of clinical way, but oftentimes it's just very simple. Like, you know, when you look at the remedies of, you know, older folks in the family, sometimes they'll, they will do both. You know, it's like really, we call it complementary care, where yes, they'll go to their medical doctor for, you know, to deal with whatever health challenge they have, but there might be something that they've been doing that their parents may have done, that their grandparents may have done, that they just go ahead and do. Um, you know, I think about the use, and that's where food becomes, you know, certainly food becomes a factor there. But even, you know, last generation, two generations ago, there are a lot of plants, especially in rural areas, if you look at, um, you know, the southern United States, if you look at Appalachia, um, they're really strong medicine traditions that did not stop um, just because someone decided that, you know, pharmaceutical drugs are a better idea. Um, so that's one thing to consider in the conversation that this really is our birthright. This is not something that um, is separate from our history, um, from any of our histories mm -hmm. you know, in this country. And it's something that we have a lot closer access to than we think we do oftentimes. Like some pe sometimes people will say, well, I don't know anything about herbal medicine, but they will have some ideas about what to do for that earache, you know, um, or whatever that someone may have told them. So I think just reminding, what part of my work is to remind people of what they already know or what they've heard. Another thing I want to make sure I mention, too, is that when we look at traditional medicine practices and, and uses of herbs, it always amazes me, I mean, it really shouldn't amaze me, but um, it's always fun when you look at things like, okay, there's a study that just came out, out on, okay, saffron is a good example, the cooking spice, which is incredibly expensive. Really expensive, um, ridiculously expensive. For sure. Yes. But one thing that we know is like medicinally, if you look at how saffron was talked about in traditional texts, you know, so if you look at really old... Um, European texts, if you look at ancient Egyptian um, texts, Greek stuff, um, Mediterranean cultures, and what they literally were writing thousands of years ago um, about saffron, it completely checks out with everything that, you know, science is telling us now about saffron. Well, and what is that? Can you tell what, what's um, About saffron specifically? Yeah. I mean, what, um, what, what do you mean? It performs as well as, I can't remember which particular antidepressants, but it performs as well as any number of... Um, of antidepressant medications that we use for a mild to moderate depression. Um, saffron is an aphrodisiac. Um, it encourages circulation in the reproductive organs, both with men and with women. Um, it's anti-inflammatory. Um, it is chemoprotective, and they're, you know, in texts, they were writing in traditional Chinese medicine 2,000 years ago about how um, saffron was used in treating cancers. Of course, now, you know, 2,000 years later, someone does a study in 2013, 2014 that says that. But I think there's so much to be said for looking to traditional wisdom and traditional knowledge. I mean, even though these are empirical, you know, this is empirical evidence or whatever, it's still, um, there's a reason that people are still alive. You know, there's a reason <laughs> that thousands of years later, we have folks thriving and living and continuing to build these um, traditional practices. 
um, it's because they work. And just because we, just because, you know, there, there hasn't been lab work done on something, for me it's really important not to discount things. There is something to be said for knowing, you know, what the clinical evidence says and current scientific evidence says about things. But I'm, I'm most of the time I'm going to rely on, um, on tradition, you know, and maybe look at the science to back it up. Because I really have a lot, honestly, I have a lot of trust um, in what people have done and what, what people know. And I'd like to encourage that when I work with people. I want to encourage them as well. And, and I, um, going back to, you, to your work, and, and I think that it's, it's kind of fascinating that, that how much you have to learn. And that never ends. Uh-huh. That never ends. There's no, that's what I'm finding is that there's really no end to... Um, there are no, there's no end to the amount of information I think that you can learn about, you know, specific herbs. It happens all the time, you know, where you think you know a lot, and then you'll talk to someone from someplace else um, or someone who just had a different group of teachers than you did, and they'll say, oh, yeah, you know, you can also use that for fill-in-the-blank. Um, that happens all the time. So, yeah, there's no end to the learning um, for sure, and... That's why, you know, one thing that I, I see often, you know, and it's tricky, and it, it gets back to that conversation that Molly was having about um, certification and licensure and that kind of thing. Um, what can happen is that people say, oh, well, I'm a master herbalist, or sign up for this program, and at the end of however long, you'll be a master herbalist. Um, I really... <laughs> I don't know that, I mean, I, I think that they exist, and I think that I've met a few, but I think that um, truly mastering this doesn't happen very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you think about the fact that it took, you know, whoever knows how many thousands of years of observation, you know, by people and by people observing animals and by observing the seasons and, you know, all of that, um, there's a lot that goes into just knowing this and understanding this medicine, and I really don't think there's an end. How, to doing it, it's important for as you know, as practitioners, as plant people, that we're always learning, that we're always engaged in conversation with other people, um, because there's always something else to learn about a plant, always. And that's part, I guess, Molly is, is at the heart of central ashe, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. I mean, it's central to what we do, and it's it's just so diverse. It's never-ending, and that's what's so exciting. And just like Io said, we really try to do the best we can to to represent the richness, the incredible richness to herbal history, to herbal folk medicine, the people's medicine, because it's incredibly diverse. If you were to um, participate only in some of the more dominant-oriented herbal uh, movement, you would hear a pretty Eurocentric story, but it's quite the contrary here in the United States and, and elsewhere. I mean, even, you know, we're doing this trip in Costa Rica, the Roots and Culture trip in January, and it's so interesting because we're working with Afro-Costa Rican herbalists and indigenous herbalists, and they will tell you the same plant completely different ways they're using it. And yeah. so it's like you're learning, but that's everywhere you go. You're and that learning. really speaks to the plants themselves. You know, it, it, that speaks to what people know about plants um, for sure. And people's experience with the plants. And at the same time, you know, one thing that always blows me away about that, the fact that there can be so many uses for an herb, it says a lot about the complexity of these plants, just as medicines. Um, And that they aren't simple. These are not pharmaceutical drugs, which, you know, and I'm not completely anti-pharmaceuticals. I'm glad that we have a lot of the medicines that we do. And at the same point, 
plant medicines, whole plants, are just as complex, I think, as people are. You know, we hmm. talk about with, with pharmaceuticals that there might be, you know, we're looking at these active constituents, you know, like we'll strip down the active constituents from a particular plant and then test that and then turn that into a pharmaceutical medication where in real life that plant taken whole will have thousands of constituents that are all active and that are all supporting our health in ways that we don't even know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, they're just really, there's no end to it. And the big <laughs> difference between the pharmaceuticals at least 50% of which that are based on botanical medicine is the botanical medicine has a DNA that that is shared with you with the human beings. We can recognize plant medicine and it's more bioavailable available to a, to us in a way that synthetic counterparts in the form of pharmaceuticals, we just don't recognize them in the same way. And so I think that's something to consider as well, is, is just remembering that, like, there's something to the whole, that when we break it and we isolate it into these little parts that we love to do in our mechanistic culture, we miss the the, the greatness that's in the whole, the whole plant. Uh, one of the things that, that struck me as you were speaking, and one of the things you said, Io, that I forget who said it, whether it was Io or, or Molly, I'm sorry. But, but that, that um, when you're in Costa Rica and you're at your place in Costa Rica, in between the Afro-Costa uh, Ricans and the indigenous people using the same herbs but having them, but, but they have different ways of using definitions, that says a lot to what, how much have we allowed ourselves to connect with our multicultural world and the intersections of those cultures, how much we still have to learn and grow together. And I think, you know, you know at the, the, you're absolutely right. And I have to really say that um, Saint-Roche and Mali in particular has done a really good job, um, not just in saying, oh, we have something to learn, you know, from this, these cultures, but in addition to that, taking the step of making sure that these cultures are doing the teaching for themselves. You know, as opposed to us coming in, you know, as gringas and saying, all right, so this herb is for this according to the local folks, and that herb is for that according to the local folks. But to actually bring in the people, bring in the experts um, who are there on the ground with these plants every day and make sure that they're being fairly compensated for the work that they're doing Um, because it's very easy to kind of go in as Westerners like, okay, we got this, we know it all. Um, or this is our financial, you know, income that's depending on this, and not necessarily give credit where credit is due, um, and be in a place where we really are learning from, in that case, what would be the dominant culture, you know. We didn't, it was exactly the opposite. Our intention with everything that we're doing in Costa Rica, we didn't want to have like a resort or like a yoga studio. You know, like there's a million of those that are like expat or really immigrant owned wherever you go, and we're just, we're... There's just an immense amount to that happening, and we wanted to create something really different where the center to to the education that's going on is popular is popular education. It's Costa Rican people telling their own story and sharing their own traditions, and that's what we do. And that's a big piece of what you do at, at Central Ashe. That's all we do. All of our <laughs> teachers, are, yeah. it really is. You know, uh-huh. as much as we, we have students that come to us, I see our role as being just as supportive in gathering the teachers. And so, you know, the, the Chesapeake Herb Gathering is a complete reflection of the richness of the herbalists and the 
the herb keepers in the in in our area, and the same thing in Costa Rica. It's it's central. We want to engage people because it's hard to make a living at this at the same time, you know. So we want to be supporting not only the students but the teachers, the ones that are carrying on this knowledge. Right, it's very difficult. I'm I'm, I'm curious. You do things like the, 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 you. Um, I owe you and Molly do things like the Roots and Culture Tour, traditional food and herbal medicine. G- give me a sense of what that is. Well, Molly, Molly, you give the sense because she's been doing this for many more years <laughs> than I have. Um, the Roots and Culture Tour is. Yeah, you talk about that. So, I mean, so Io and I are coming. Our role is really coming from the United States. We kind of gather the people, the people that are interested in traditional food and herbal medicine in Costa Rica, and the Roots and Culture Tour. The teacher, it's a one week. Uh, it's a one-week tour in the South Caribbean and of Talamanca, Costa Rica. And we stay in the small traditional fish filling vi- uh, fishing village of Manzanillo, which is right on the Caribbean Sea. And from there, we break out and we get to visit different traditional farmers, indigenous farmers, indigenous herbalists, as well as Afro-Costa Rican herbalists and farmers. And we learn, their, they share with us their traditions and their knowledge. And so... All of the places that we stay, all of the, the tours that we do, all of the teachers that come and teach us are our local Costa Rican people. Really, are the role of Io and I are kind of to gather in the people and to sort of facilitate that process. But our teachers are all Costa Rican people. And all of the money that gets brought in through these trips is being fed right back into the local community. So uh, that's really that's what the... The, the work we're doing in Costa Rica really centers around. No, it's, it sounds fascinating and exciting. And I, I, I like to kind of go back from it before we end to the to, to Central Ashe here. Um, and you, because earlier, Molly, you were going through the seasons and what you actually teach. And I, I'd like you two to give a sense of that, to give a sense of what the herbs are doing different times of the year and what you're looking for in this world of, of, of herbs and in your, in your herbal healing. So... Uh, in the art, practice, and tradition of herbalism, as you put it. Ayo, you want to talk about what's going outside, on sure. outside your window yeah. right now? Yeah. <laughs> or speak to that? Outside my, no, outside my window. It's a little bit different. She's in Georgia right now. <laughs> in Georgia? But, right now. Uh-huh. You know, I, one thing that I think, and just speaking specifically to Central Ache, one thing that's really great, um, because of the timing of the classes and the programs there, Molly mentioned this earlier, folks have the opportunity to come in at the very, very beginning of a growing season and literally start from seed or, you know, however um, plants are being started or just to watch the things that are perennials and coming up on their own. But really observing um, in the spring what's happening, what leaves look like, how they're unfolding, when does a fruit um, or a berry show up on the plant, what is the color that it should be when it's ready for harvesting, or how does this plant smell when it's ready for harvesting? Um, what do you want to see above the ground to know that the below ground parts are ready for harvesting? So like this time of year, um, you're probably starting to dig roots. Um, the very, very beginnings of some of it, and later after the frost um, has come, there'll be other things to harvest late in the, late in the fall. But I think that's really important that folks can come and actually see that because, for example, there are some plant ID books that will say, all right, dandelion has, is that a good example? I guess that's a decent enough example. Dandelion has this bright yellow flower and it looks like this. And you'll see that if it's that time of year for dandelion to have that flower. Um, if that's not the time of year, you know, if we're talking about late fall, you won't necessarily know where to find your dandelion or how to look for dandelion, or how to identify it. And so being in that, that um, environment on the farm, folks can really get a sense for what a plant looks like 
like over the whole over its whole lifespan. Um, and I think it's really easy, even if you're trained, you know, in a graduate program, you know, for this, it's really easy to have no idea what an actual plant looks like. It's happened a lot of times where I've said, oh, this person needs to take ashwagandha or whatever herb, um, and I'll use it all the time. And then at a certain point, I see it growing, and I'm thinking, wow, I've recommended this herb 50 times, and I never actually saw it or I never saw it in the spring, or I don't know exactly what it smells like. And there's a lot of medicine that's there, you know, in just um, in, in the energetics of a plant. And just being able to see it over the whole lifespan, you get to see all those different, um, those different variations and what makes the medicine the medicine. Hmm. Well, this is fascinating. There's a great deal more to talk about uh, over the coming years, and the coming year, I should say, and we get back together and keep our look at the world of herbs uh, with these two women. Molly Mahan and Ayo Ngozi, both clinical herbalists. Uh, Molly is director of the Central Ashe um, Herbs and Education, and Ayo works, they work together in tandem uh, at this and in their own. Uh, and you can find out more about their place by going to www.centralashe.org. That's C-E-N-T-R-O-A-S-H-E.org. And if you didn't catch that, it'll be on our website at Stanishow.org and at SoundBitesRadio.org for you to contact with them. Uh, and Molly and Ayo, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to SoundBites today. Send me your thoughts and questions on today's show to talk at Steinershow.org. The Mark Steiner Show and SoundBites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media and made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Stephanie Mavronis and Mark Gunnery. Our engineers, Andre Melton. Our engineer at Delmarva Public Radio is Christopher Rank. Our interns are Manifa Wilson, Calvin Perry, and Siana Greaves. Our theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's show to talk at steinershow.org. And to podcast The Mark Steiner Show, share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org, or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. Your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio. I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.